Well, this is a very special weekend in our country as we have the opportunity to remember those who've given their lives to defend our freedom that we are able to enjoy here. I know some of you who are joining us today have likely lost uh, loved ones or lost friends. And so we want to let you know that we love you. We are praying for you. Uh, we want to take a minute just as we start here to um, thank God for the sacrifice that has been made, but also to pray for those who have lost loved ones, that God would comfort them on this weekend as we uh, step into Memorial Day weekend. So would you join me in praying? Father, we um, come to you and just recognize the special kind of person it takes to lay down their life, not just for those they love, but maybe even for those they, they don't agree with to protect um, freedoms that are sometimes taken advantage of. God, that, that's such a unique type of love. So God, right now, as we just enter this weekend, God, we do want to ask you to bring peace and comfort to those who have lost friends and loved ones. God, for those who maybe have just regrets that come during this time, God, would you fill them with joy in a deep sense that you are near to them in this season? God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John. Uh, today, we are jumping into John chapter 7. And it's kind of weird just with the timing. We're actually entering into the last six or seven months of Jesus's life as we jump into John 7 and look at what it is that's coming up today. Now, as we look at John 7, we are going to kind of take a 10,000 foot view to look at both the setting and the story that John show or shares with us in this passage. And then we're going to dive in as we draw closer to the end of this passage to ask the question how we might respond to the truth that is revealed in this passage. Now, it starts out here in the first verse and kind of gives us a setting for what it is that we are going to encounter here in the first couple of verses. So John chapter seven, verse one says this. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. Now this points us back to John chapter five, when Jesus healed a man that was paralyzed. And after Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, the religious leaders were appalled. They couldn't believe he would make such a blatant offense and crossing over of the law that was in place. So they began to plot, it tells us in John five eighteen to come up with a way that they could kill Jesus for this violation. So we're told here that Jesus then spent most of his time in Galilee teaching and ministering to the different people that he encountered in those places. Now, Jesus knew that there was a cross in front of him, but, but it wasn't time for him to face his impending death quite yet. So Jesus continued to minister here in Galilee. Now we're told in verse two that the Jewish festival of the tabernacles was drawing near and Jesus's brothers were trying to get Jesus to go there. Now, if you're like me, you, you may not know much about the Jewish festival of the tabernacles. I knew close to nothing until I kind of studied through this this week. So I just want to share some things that, that I think are important for us to understand what unfolds in this passage today. 
First, this was the most popular Jewish festival on the Jewish calendar. It was the most popular opportunity for people to return to Jerusalem, to worship God, to celebrate what God had done. Because it was so popular, pilgrims would travel from all over the known world there to come and celebrate with their Jewish brothers and sisters, even though they may have been scattered. And so because people came from all over, it's likely that the Jewish leaders expected to see Jesus at this celebration. Now, this uh, celebration, this festival was actually given by God to Moses in Leviticus chapter 23. So it was something that was given to the nation of Israel close to the beginning. It was a festival that was given to them to remember what God had done as God protected them as they went through the wilderness, as they lived in temporary shelters for such a long time. So they would come to Jerusalem and live in these temporary shelters for a week. During, it was set during the grape harvest in September or October. So it was also a time where people would not just look back to what God had done, but they would bring their first fruits to celebrate the way that God was going to provide in this upcoming harvest. Now, after God established the nation of Israel, something we see happen again and again, like a vicious cycle is that the people of Israel continually turned away from God. God rescued the people out of slavery in Egypt and the people turned away from him. God gave them this beautiful, incredible land and yet the people still turned. The people asked for a king and God gave them a king and yet they turned from him again and again and again. And the result was something that God actually told him or told the nation would happen way back in the beginning of the nation being established. It was this, that if they continued to turn away from God, God would actually allow other countries to come in and carry them off into exile. And whenever the people continued to rebel, this is exactly what God allowed to happen to the nation of Israel. But when it happened, God promised to bring them back one day again. And whenever the people returned, this Feast of the Tabernacles actually played a big role in what it looked like for them to celebrate. In the book of Nehemiah chapters eight and nine, we see that the people have come back. They've started to build the wall to protect Jerusalem again. And they're going through the temple and they find the law of God. And the first thing they do is realize that it is time to celebrate the feast of the tabernacle. So the people do that. They confess their sin. And it is a giant marker in the history of Israel of them coming back to God and deciding to follow him again. Now, the feast was marked by a couple of different rites or or rituals that they would practice. And one of them was a water drying ritual. You see, what would happen is the priests would go and they would take this fancy gold pitcher and they would take it to the pool of Siloam and they would dip it into the pool there. And then the high priest would lead a procession back to the temple. They would enter into the gates and whenever they entered in, there were these three loud trumpet blasts. And after the trumpets blasted, the the temple choir would sing the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They would sing all the way through it. And then all the male pilgrims would hold up in their right hand a palm branch and their left hand a citrus fruit and say, thanks be to God, thanks be to God, thanks be to God, thanking him for the way he had provided And then they would take that pitcher and the high priest would pour it on the front of the altar. And this was a special moment because it celebrated two different things. 
First, it was a time for the people to remember. It was a time where they remembered God's miraculous provision of water in the desert. If you don't know that story, what happened was the people were uh, coming out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And there were multiple times where God actually provided water for them in a miraculous way by bringing it from a rock. The second thing that it was, it wasn't just a remembering, but it was also a looking forward to the Lord's pouring out of his spirit in the last days whenever he sent his Messiah. So they took this time to remember what God had done and to look forward to God sending his spirit in the days ahead. Jesus's brothers encouraged Jesus to go up to Jerusalem. And we're told there in verse four, so that he could make a name for himself. You see, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him at this point. Some of them later became major leaders in the early church. But at this point, they had a hard time believing. It was like Jesus wasn't quite meeting expectations like so many other people faced as well. So they told him, hey, you're just an attention seeker. So why don't you go to, well, the most popular festival of the year and do some of your great little signs and miracles. You know, then you can maybe win back some of those followers that left you just a couple weeks back. You know, they were trying to get Jesus Jesus to go up here, but Jesus kind of made something clear. You see, Jesus walked by his father's agenda. He didn't fall into whatever it was that other people wanted from him. So Jesus told him it wasn't quite his time yet. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that he would never leave Galilee or go to Jerusalem, but he was saying, hey, I'm not operating by your agenda. I'm operating by the agenda that my father in heaven has set for me. So Jesus's brothers head to the festival and we're told in verses 10 and 11 that Jesus headed to the festival as well in those days that, that were to follow there. Now, verses 12 and 13 give us a picture of something that we're gonna see again and again and again in this passage. And it's this, that, that whenever people encountered Jesus, there were some pretty polarized responses. Here's what it says in John 7, verses 12 and 13. It says, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. This polarization that we see in this passage of some saying, yeah, he's the Messiah. Others saying, I don't know. I think he's just deceiving people. Something that pops up again and again, not just in this chapter, but throughout the rest of the gospel of John. We're told in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus went to the temple about halfway through the festival and he began to teach there. Now, remember, this is the most popular festival of the year. And there were people from all over who would come to the temple to celebrate the festivities throughout the week. So Jesus begins teaching halfway through the week and the people are amazed at his teaching. You see, oftentimes uh, people would go to great rabbinical schools or they would have some great rabbi that they apprenticed under, but Jesus didn't have either one of these things on his resume. And the people were amazed because even though Jesus didn't have this as part of his story, he had an incredible grasp of the scripture and he was able to teach it in a really powerful way. And so it led to some questions about how is it that this happens? 
Jesus goes on to tell the crowds, well, it's because the the one who sent me is the one who I'm teaching from. It's the one who sent me who ultimately has given me this teaching. Now, Jesus claiming to receive this teaching directly from God didn't sit too well with his hearers. See, you oftentimes would just tie your teaching back to several different rabbis. You would show how that had been passed down from generation to generation to generation, and that's what held authority. But here, Jesus aligns his teaching with God himself. And the people did not respond well at all. But in verses 17 through 19, Jesus says something incredibly powerful. Here's what he says. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who has sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses uh, given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Here, Jesus makes a profound statement. If you want to discover the truth about who I am, if you want to discover the truth about who God is, you have to be willing to surrender to what it is that God's going to reveal. You have to commit yourself to surrendering to God above all. If God does, in fact, reveal to you what it is that, about who he is or who it is that he has sent. You must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will, even if it conflicts with your hopes and your dreams. If God is to reveal you this true story, this truth about who Jesus is. And Jesus says the problem for these people wasn't an intellectual one. It wasn't that they didn't have the cognitive capabilities to understand what Jesus was saying. It was the problem with their willingness to submit to what God was revealing in Jesus. He further challenges them to weigh his teaching and ask the question, is it seeking to glorify God or is it just seeking to make much of Jesus? And he says, my teaching will stand on its own. Jesus then proves their lack of desire to honor God by exposing something. He says, hey, uh, you say you desire to honor God and yet you are plotting to murder me. And that would kind of be a violation of that 10 commandment thing. You know, the one that says, do not murder So Jesus is saying, if you can't even seek to to keep the 10 commandments, how is it that you're actually seeking to honor God? And if you're not seeking to honor God or uh, observe whatever it is he reveals to you, then how can you say that that's why you can't actually see me? Now, whenever Jesus says this, the crowds escalate pretty quickly. In fact, they respond by accusing Jesus of being demon possessed because they say, hey, you're paranoid. No one's here trying to kill you. But Jesus points back to that miracle from John chapter five when he healed that man who was paralyzed. And he says, hey, the plot to kill me began then. He goes on to show why his teaching on the Sabbath or why his healing the man on the Sabbath was actually a true fulfillment of what God designed the Sabbath to be. He uses this form of argument that was really common with rabbis. He would argue from something that was a lesser truth to a greater truth. So what he said was, hey, if God gave you the Sabbath and he gave you circumcision, what you do as a people is on the eighth day, you circumcise a boy, whether it's the Sabbath or not, you circumcise him. This was because the people saw this as a completing of that child's body. 
So Jesus says, if that completion or that making whole of a child can be done on the Sabbath, how much more should I be able to heal this whole man's body? If, if you truly want to see God's design for the Sabbath, you would see that I am actually fulfilling what God desires to happen with Sabbath. Jesus points to the problem that they face in verse 24. He says, hey, your problem is that you're judging by mere appearances. At this point, the crowds are confused. I mean, these religious leaders have been plotting to kill Jesus over this last extended period of time. It's at least six months, we know, based upon this timeline. And yet here Jesus is directly in front of them, right out in the open, and no one's touching him. Why is this? Some of the crowd begin to ask the question, could, could it be that the religious leaders know that this is the Messiah? Is that why they aren't responding at all? Is that why they aren't actually trying to, to capture him in this moment? Why is it that they're not seizing this man when he is right in front of them? But then in verse 42, they kind of show, hey, we know our Bibles. We know why this can't be the Messiah. And they say, the Messiah is supposed to come from David's family, which means he'd be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus, well, well he's from Galilee. Surely he can't be the Messiah because they thought they knew about Jesus. They thought they knew where Jesus had come from. Well, after this, Jesus again ties himself to God and God's authority. He says, hey, if you knew God, then you would know who I am. If you knew God, you would recognize that I am the one that God promised to send. The result, well, as you might expect by now, is more outrage. They tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Well, John doesn't really explain the whole story. He just simply says, because his hour had not yet come. But many in the crowd, again, there's this polarized response. Some are trying to seize him, but then others are saying, when the Messiah comes, will he possibly do more works and miracles than this man? So again, there are those that believe Jesus might and probably is the Messiah and others who are trying to kill him. When the Pharisees heard the whispers of the crowd, they sent the temple guards to go and seize Jesus. They sent them to go arrest him and bring, them, bring Jesus back to them. And while this is all happening, Jesus says, hey, my, my time here is short. I don't have many days ahead and then you won't be able to find me. And this led to some confusion. Where is it that Jesus is going? Jesus' teaching continued to bring this polarized response. And it all culminates in verse 37 through 39. Here's what we see Jesus say as we come to the last day of the festival. John chapter seven, verses 37 through 38 says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now I can just imagine this moment taking place around that water ritual that they did each day. I can imagine that high priest coming back into the temple, the trumpets blasting, the temple choir singing. This is the last day, which means that the, the, the festival crowds would actually go around the altar seven times before the priest dumps out the water. And then the priest dumps out the water and Jesus says in a loud voice, I'm the fulfillment of this. 
If you're thirsty, come to me. If you're longing for God to pour out his spirit, come and see that I am the one who's going to give the spirit. I am the one who's going to pour this out. I am the Messiah. And this offer goes out to anyone and everyone. You see, as we learned last week, Jesus is the only way. And here we see something that makes that even more incredible. You see, Jesus isn't just the only way, but he is also the one who brings about these rivers of living water. He's one who brings about true life and fulfillment. He's one who brings this deep satisfaction that we were created to enjoy. It comes from Jesus. Imagine that priest pouring the water out to celebrate that rite as the end of this festival that had been celebrated for centuries. Year after year, the water being poured out and the people thinking about what it was that God was going to do. And Jesus saying, are you thirsty? Do you desire to experience God's provision like your ancestors experienced in the wilderness? Do you want to experience the new life that God promised? Come to me. Here we see an incredibly powerful truth about who Jesus is. And it's this, Jesus is life-giving. Jesus is the one who gives us life. He's the one who brings about this life that we were created to enjoy. And just in case we didn't draw the connection from the water right to what Jesus says, John makes it explicit what's happening here in verse 39. Here's what John 7, 39 says. He says, by this, talking about Jesus, he meant, or by this, he, meaning Jesus, meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. They were looking forward to the pouring out of the spirit in the last days. And Jesus is saying, hey, whoever believes in me, the result, I give this living water. I give the spirit to them freely. The spirit is the life-giving agent that is sent after Jesus is glorified. Now the spirit has always been at work throughout the entire story of scripture. But here Jesus points to the fact that those who believe in him would actually be indwelt by the spirit and experience this unique uh, relationship with the spirit. The spirit wouldn't just come upon them, but it would flow from within them. Jesus begins to prepare his followers for something he makes explicit throughout the rest of this book. That is this, that the sending of the spirit comes when Jesus actually departs. Jesus's departure and the sending of the spirit are tied together. In fact, Jesus will say here in just a couple of chapters that it is actually better for his followers for him to leave so that he can send the spirit to be with him. This is good news for us. Now, I just want you for a second to put yourself in the place of these original hearers. As they're hearing this, they're likely thinking back to prophecies they've heard since their childhood. I just want to read one of those to you. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11, where Isaiah writes this. He says, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden. I'm sure there were many in the crowd that felt like a sun-scorched land who were longing for water. And here Jesus gives them the offer and the opportunity to experience it. Ray Ortland says this about this passage in Isaiah. If your life is a continual effort to cope with the grim business of survival just to get by, you don't understand. 
God has so much more for you than that. He has a spring of water whose waters do not fail. The question is, are you willing to come to Jesus to experience these waters? Are you willing to come to him to experience these rivers that he so freely offers? You know, as we continue on here, I want to give you a couple of minutes to reflect before we wrap up. I want to give you three minutes and there are going to be a couple of questions that pop up on the screen. And my encouragement to you is to write down um, both of these questions and that little sub point as well. But take a second and only try to answer that first question in these three minutes that we're giving you now. to encourage you to take some extra time either later today or later this week, maybe to reflect a little more deeply on that first question or to dive into that second question and explore what it is that God desires to do in you and how you can take a step towards experiencing this life he offers for you. Jesus desires to actually give us rivers of living water to flow from within you. He desires to give you this gift. He doesn't give it begrudgingly. It's something he gives freely. You know, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 47 talks about this picture of a day when the temple would actually have a river flowing from it. And that river would be a life-giving, a healing, a restoring river. In fact, everything it touches would actually come to life. It would bring about life no matter what it was that it kind of encountered. It had this life-sustaining property about this water from the sanctuary. You know, I think this picture that Jesus offers us in this passage is of those who are indwelt by the spirit as being that kind of people, a people who bring about healing, a people who are life-giving a people who bring about restoration. This is what Jesus envisions for his people as he sends his spirit to indwell them, to be like a river of living water that's overflowing from within them. 
And church, we live in a world that is parched, a world that is thirsty for something real, something pure, something to encounter that actually does fulfill, something that brings about real life. And you have that source living in you. What would it look like for you in this next week to step into seeing what it looks like to pass on those life-giving properties that God has put in you? This happens sometimes through our words. Is it you choosing to use your words intentionally with someone around you to speak life into them, just like Jesus has spoken life into you? Is it by you choosing to love and serve selflessly because this well within you is something that overflows? Is it you choosing to give of yourself like Jesus freely gave to us in loving those around you in self-giving love? Is it you choosing to be present with someone who is mourning and hurting? I don't know what it looks like for each and every one of us to respond to this, to step into being this life-giving type of person. But I think this is what Jesus desires to invite us into. In fact, I think Jesus' question for you, if you maybe aren't experiencing this or haven't experienced this before, is this, will you come to Jesus and be filled up? Will you lay aside your own desires, the things you've been running after and come to see that Jesus is the only true source of fulfillment, that he freely gives his spirit and puts him into us whenever we choose to surrender to him? Will you come to him? The question for me and you is how will we respond? There were mixed responses to Jesus. With the religious leaders in the crowd, some people in the crowd said, this man is the prophet. He's the one we've been waiting for. Others said, he is the Messiah. He's the one God promised to send to reign here on earth. Other people were a little skeptical. They said, how can the Messiah be from Galilee? The religious leaders asked the temple guards, why didn't you arrest this man? The temple guards responded and said, no one has ever spoken like this man has. Nicodemus, the man we've met earlier in the book says, hey, shouldn't we explore more before condemning this man? I don't know where you are on that spectrum of responses to Jesus, but I know that Jesus desires to give you life. How will you choose to respond to him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you so much for the way you so freely give us life. God, right now, I pray that as we move forward into this week, that we don't move past this truth too quickly. God, that you desire to fill us up and bubble up from within us. And you desire that not to stop with us, but to flow through us as we love and serve those around us. God, give us a greater taste of you as we just dwell on this truth. Speak to us. Help us to see your face. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.